can turn over to Mark 12. We'll move on ahead and Mark. We'll be into the crucifixion here before too long. We'll actually be done before too long. So Mark chapter 12, we're going to read through the end of the chapter. We'll cover the end of the chapter tonight, Lord willing. And uh, beginning in verse 35, it says, And Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, How say the scribes that Christ is the Son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore himself called him Lord, and whence is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. And he said unto them in his doctrine, Beware of the scribes, which love to go in long clothing, and love salutations in the marketplaces, and in the chief seats, and the synagogues, and in the uppermost rooms at feast, which devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These shall receive greater damnation. And Jesus sat over against the treasury, and he beheld how the people cast money into the treasury, and many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. And he called unto him his disciples, and said unto them, Truly, verily, I say unto you, that this poor widow has cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living." So Jesus is up to this point, up to verse 35 where we started, has just ended the interrogation. He's been interrogated by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And it was through the wisdom that the Spirit of God gave him that he was able to answer these critics' questions because they wanted to destroy him. And when he was all finished, we see there at the end of verse 34, what does it say? It says that no man after that durst ask him any questions. So... One thing we can get out of this is that if you witness to enough people, if you talk to enough people about the Lord and share your faith, you're going to find those that they want to trip you up by questions they ask. They'll interrogate you that way. They're going to try to make you look like a fool and in a sense destroy the gospel that you're preaching to them. But one thing that we need to remember in these coming days when we talk to people is that the Lord promises that he'll give us the same wisdom that he had. And in Luke 21, 12 to 15, it says this, but before all these things, and he's talking about in the last days, the end times, which we're in, but before all these things, they will lay their hands on you, will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. And he says this, it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So you'd have to look at that as a negative way. Oh, well, such and such is being brought before the authorities. Well, he's saying it will lead for an opportunity to your testimony. And so he says, so make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. He says, for I, the Lord says this, I will give you utterance or a mouth that says in the King James utterance, the words to speak and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist. They won't be able to stand up against, he says, stand up against your words that I will give you or refute them. And we have an actual case of that in the book of Acts with Stephen. So it says in Acts 6 that Stephen is performing miracles and sign and the grace of God is on him. And it says these of the synagogue of the freedmen, these were men, learned men in the scriptures, it says from Asia, Cyrenia, Alexandria, and Cilicia. 
they rose up against Stephen. They think they're going to put him down, but they messed with the wrong guy because we read in there that it says he was full of grace and power. And it said prior to that, when they were choosing the men whom they wanted to be the deacons, the first deacons, look out amongst you and find men that are filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom. So that's what he had. And we read when it says when they began to argue with Stephen about the gospel, Acts 6.10 says this, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Now, that wasn't because he's naturally such a smart guy or so shrewd in the scriptures. It's because of the anointing that was on him, and he didn't know the scriptures. So there's another case. We were just talking about this last night and in preparing this message. Uh, during the Reformation, there were the Swiss brethren, the Anabaptists, and one of their leaders was a very godly man. He was an ex-monk. His name was Michael Sattler. And anyways, they finally arrested him. He was an ex-priest. And they bring him before this council. He comes in this room, and up in the gallery were just common people. But they're bringing him before all these learned Roman Catholic bishops and archbishops. And I'm saying they were needling him on things he taught, things that we believe. And I'm saying, I don't have time to go through and read it all now. It's in Martyr's Mirror. You can read it for yourself. You can get online and read it. It's actually very good. But they had these nine, seven to nine points. They said, you said this, you said this, you said this. He went through every one of those points and gave scriptural refutations to everything they said and basically put them in their place. And the common people, <laughs> there's a movie they actually made about this. They realized they could tell who the righteous person was. And it was Michael Sattler, these other people. He, he basically shut their mouths. They finally took one statement he made and twisted it and used it against him to get the people on their side to where they were able eventually, they burned him at the stake and did a lot of other things to him. But one thing I want to say, though, is Michael Sattler didn't just say, hey, you know, God will just give me what to say and I don't have to worry about it. In a sense, he did. But prior to that, he spent a lot of time studying the scriptures, studying the scriptures, meditating on the scriptures. And I'm saying we need to do that. We can't just say, well, here's that promise. And, you know, here we get brought before whoever or we're trying to witness to somebody. You don't have any answers. I mean, the Holy Spirit will bring back to you remembrance and he'll bring stuff to your mind as you're witnessing to people. I've experienced this a lot of times, but if you don't put it in, it's not going to be there for him to bring it up. Right. And so we really do need to do that. And I think it's going to be important in these last days. But here we have beginning in verse 35, Jesus turns the table and he's like, all right, you guys have been asking me. You've been interrogating me. I want to ask you a question. And really, the question that he asked them makes their questions seem insignificant. Because he asked, you know, they're asking him, should we pay taxes? Whose wife is this woman going to be in the resurrection? And even the question of what is the greatest commandment of all is, in a sense, pointless and insignificant in light of the question that Jesus is going to ask them. It's the most important question any of us can be asked. And that is, who is the Christ? Who is the Messiah? Who really is he? And that's the first question we see here. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ and what is your view of him? And that's what he asked him here in verse 35. Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how say the scribes that Christ or the Messiah is the son of David? In essence, he's asking, in what sense is the Messiah the son of David? So in Matthew's account, it's worded a little different. It says he asked them directly, what think you of the Christ? 
What's your opinion of the Christ? Whose son is he? As you find out somebody whose son they are, you find out a whole lot about him, don't you? And that's what he asked him. So the scribes had taught that the Messiah would be of the lineage of David. So in that sense, they were saying he was David's son, and they were right as far as that went. So we have all kinds of Old Testament text that point to Jesus or the Messiah being from the lineage of David. Isaiah 9 says a child would be born that would sit on the throne of David. Isaiah 11 prophesies of a rod that would come from the stem of Jesse and a branch that would arise from his roots. And I could just go on and on and on. There's a lot of Old Testament scriptures. They understood that the Messiah, the Christ, was going to come from the seed of David. It was a common held belief amongst the Jews. When the angel Gabriel came to Mary at the birth of Jesus, he said this. He said in Luke 1.32, He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. So the point is, everybody believed that. There wasn't really any argument there that he was going to be of the seed of David or the son of David. So when the Lord's asking that question in verse 35, what he's really saying is, but is that all there is to it? Is the Messiah just simply the flesh and blood descendant of David? That's really what he's asking there. And here's the thing. It's important, too, to see where is he asking this question. So he's not asking this question in private. Where is he asking the question? In the temple. He's asking this question publicly. He's asking it. This is where the teachers were. The teachers that would teach the common people about God. And he's asking this question front and center about them. And what he's doing that for is the common people are gathered around. And they've seen already how he's answered them. He wants to see the common people to think about what he is asking. He wants them to think about it. But he's also doing something else. He's showing the common people, the scribes, inability to answer his question. And they should be able to. So shouldn't a minister, or even us, I would say, shouldn't we be able to answer questions that people come to us about, about our faith and what we believe? And so 2 Timothy 2 says, study to show thyself. You know, Brother Hamilton used to quote this scripture to us all the time, but it's still true, and it's still what we should do. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, that can rightly divide the word of truth. We should all be able to do that to one level or another, right? And so he's exposing the public that these guys here, they're teachers of the law, but they really inadequately know the scriptures. And they've been studying them all of their life. But listen, that is the problem with all false teaching. Because when your motives are wrong, when you have wrong motives, your views of the scriptures get twisted and distorted and you can't properly interpret them. And we're going to see that. So when we look at verses 38 to 40, we're going to see that what was their motivation for doing what they did for studying the scripture? They were covetous. They were proud. That was their motivation. And read 2 Peter 2. We taught on that. That is what false teachers do. They learn enough of the Bible and they learn how to twist enough of the Bible that they can get in there and take advantage of your money to take care of women that are weak sexually and to take advantage of people and teach them, hey, and all they're going to do is produce people that are like them according to the flesh. And that's what happens. So in Matthew's account, Jesus asked these scribes 
directly asked him, what think you of Christ? Whose son is he? And they answer, they give the answer that they knew, the son of David. And he says, well, if that's the case, if that's all there is to it, and he's just the son of David, then he's saying, he goes on to say, then explain this verse to me. And that's what we have here in verse 36. And what he's quoting here in verse 36 is the most often quoted Old Testament verse in the entire New Testament. It's Psalm 110, the most quoted verse, 36 times quoted, I believe it's 36 times in the New Testament. And look what he says. For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, that's Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And so just a little parenthesis here, who is Jesus attributing this Psalm to be written by? David. And if you can believe this or not, People that are Christians, Old Testament scholars refute that. Most modern Old Testament scholars say that David didn't write this psalm, and they have all their reasons for it. I'm like, right. So who am I going to believe, Jesus or this scholar? I mean, come on. I mean, really. That's the kind of stuff you deal with if you go to a seminary or you read too many books. It's like crazy, right? But what we need to see, though, is why is he saying that? Well, he didn't have to say that, but he's saying David himself. So he's saying David was the author. He may have been the one that penned the words, and his personality was used. But he's saying there's divine authority behind those words, isn't he? He said, for David himself said, how did David say it? By the Holy Ghost. And so what's he saying? These are the very words of God. The Psalms, that's what you're reading. <laughs> and not only that, but he's saying those words of God in the Old Testament, what are they doing? Inspired by the Holy Spirit, who are they pointing to? He's saying they're pointing towards the Messiah, towards him. And that is all of the Old Testament in one form or another is pointing directly, indirectly to the Lord Jesus Christ. So you remember the story when the two men were walking with the Lord after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus? And what did it say happened? He began to open up the scriptures and it says beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, expounded, opened up the meaning of them, expounded unto them in all the scriptures. That's the Old Testament. The things concerning himself. So what I'm trying to say just with this first part is we need to know when we pick up some people, they only want to read the New Testament. They don't like the Old Testament. They don't. There's something different about it. But you need to see by the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's saying, David, by the Holy Spirit. Peter said that the men of old, the prophets, as they were moved along, spake these words by the Holy Spirit. So we need to know that when we're reading the Old Testament, what are we reading? The very words of God breathed out by the Holy Spirit through men. They were the instruments, but they are the very words of God that point to our Lord and Savior. That's, that's an important thing to remember, right? All reported to Christ. So, what's he doing? He's quoting that verse because he's wanting the people and the scribes to think about what are these words saying. And he's saying, so if David is calling the Messiah my Lord, he's saying, how can both be true at the same time? How can the Messiah be David's son? You all agree at that. But how can he also be David's Lord? Because there's nobody's going to have their son call their son their Lord, let their son reign over them. It doesn't matter. Their seed. That's not the way things work. 
especially back then. He's saying, how could he be his son when he's saying he is his superior? Somebody that he is going to bow his knee down to. And there's no fleshly person, no fleshly offspring that was going to fit that description. And so look, Jesus pushes the question. Verse 37, look what it says. He says, David therefore himself called him Lord. And he says, think about it then. Why is he then his son? And what's the answer to that is because he is not only David's son, that was true, but he's also the son of God, isn't he? Divine. And the scribes, the Pharisees, and even the people here, they refused to believe that at this time, right? But besides the fact, look what it says there at the end of verse 37. It says, the common people heard him gladly. But these same common people were the ones, they, they were like, they liked to hear the message, but it really wasn't in their heart because they're the same ones that cried out, crucify him. So the fact somebody hears a message gladly, any of us, that doesn't mean that we have that truth in our heart and we really believe it, does it? Because you've got to remember the same word was used of Herod. It said he called for John and he says, it says, he heard him gladly. But who took off his head? It was Herod, right? So that's no guarantee just that you hear the word of, heard the word gladly because the people did what? They crucified the Lord of glory, didn't they? They didn't understand who they killed. And that's what the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 2. Paul says, none of the princes of this world. He's talking about these leaders here. None of these people of this world knew who he was, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And what did Jesus have to pray as he's dying on the cross? Father, forgive them. And why did he say to forgive? He goes, they don't know what they're doing. They don't realize who they're crucifying. They think I'm just a man. They didn't understand all that. So the Savior is both David's Lord the creator of all things, the judge of all the earth, the sovereign, eternal God of the universe, but he's also David's son according to the flesh. And that's how Matthew begins his gospel. If you ever read the beginning of Matthew, it says, starts off this way, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. So he's both, isn't he? Right? And listen, so he's in the sense of the flesh in that way, Made in the likeness of sinful flesh, he wasn't ever sinful, but he's also deity. I mean, and it's critical that both views of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we keep both views of him, that he is fully man and fully God in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a mystery. We can't understand that. But here's the problem. Here's the point for us. Throughout church history, either one side or the other gets emphasized. So there is a period in church history where he is so high and lofty and this coming judge. And I mean, people were afraid of him, afraid of the Lord. But I'm telling you, we have the pendulum has swung the other way now because people are so much. He's been brought down. Our Lord Jesus Christ to such a common level that people look at him and they sing songs about him like he is just our bigger brother that we chum with, our big brother that we just chum with. Or they had these romantic songs with all these romantic lyrics. It's really popular now. I mean, that is like, come on, give me a break. So, 
We need to keep the balance, and the balance is found in Isaiah 57, 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity. I mean, we talked about Isaiah 6. He is high and sitting on his throne. His train fills the temple. The angels are crying back and forth, holy, holy, holy. And in his presence, Isaiah is like, I am so convicted of my sin. He's not going to be say, hey, hey, buddy, hey, friend, can you can you hug me, embrace me? I mean, it's not like that. There's a holiness there. But back to Isaiah 57, thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place. But he goes on to say with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of of the contrite ones. So we just need to keep that balance, right? Our Lord is to be feared, respected, He's holy, but He also is there to help us out. We have Hebrews 4 for that, right? We're, we're struggling. He will come and help us. He says he's, we have a high priest that cannot be he's touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He's felt the same things we have, just without sin. And He'll come and give us the grace and help we need. It's both true. And David had to learn that balance, didn't he? 2 Samuel 6. He wants to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. It said for 20 years the ark hadn't been in Israel because of Saul. (laughs) It's sitting in a house, Abinadab's house. And that ark, the mistake David made is he treated the holy ark that had the presence of God there, he treated it like the Philistines did. He's going to take the ark to Jerusalem, and how's he going to do it? He's going to stick it on a cart. That's the way the Philistines, the heathen, transported God's holy ark around on a cart, except David used a new cart, but it was still a cart nonetheless. And he has Abinadab's sons, Uzzah and Ahio, or Ahio, however you say it. I guess being a buckeye, I'd prefer to say Ahio. But anyways, those are the two that are escorting that cart, one in the front, one in the back. And as it's going along there, and they're all excited. David's all excited, playing music, singing, dancing. This is great. The ark's coming back, coming to Jerusalem. And it says, as they go, the oxen made the car shake, and Uzzah put out his hand and touched the ark. Mm -mm. And it said God was hot. He got angry and smote him. He died right there at the ark, Uzzah did. And so David's like, at first it says he's angry at what happened because he's like, what in the world? What what did that guy do to deserve that? But then the fear of God came over him. And here's what it says. David was afraid of the Lord that day because he realized something. He realized that God was holy and was serious about the way he was treated and worshiped. So David's like, we're just going to leave the ark here, <laughs> whatever house they were by. Even though God wasn't out to destroy people, that wasn't the point. Because where that house was left, that man was blessed. But David says, I don't know how I'm going to get this thing back. But you know what he did? He went home and got out the law. Because God had given very clear instructions on how his ark was to be transported and by whom was supposed to do it, Right. The instructions said there is no touching the ark, there's no even no looking on the ark, and there is no cart. So the ark was supposed to be covered, and only the Kohathites of the Levites could carry the ark, and how were they supposed to carry it? 
on poles. They were the only ones to cover the ark, to carry the ark. It said if they didn't do that, if they looked on it, they touched it, they did, it says, lest you die. God had already clearly warned all of Israel and David about what to do. And I'm saying, you don't mess with him. You don't mess with the Lord. And David feared because his eyes were open to see, this is the God I'm dealing with. I don't like what this one commentator said. He says, the application, talking about 2 Samuel 6, the application of the text is clear. You dare not trifle with the God who is both real and holy. And he said this, Yahweh is not your neat, warm, fuzzy friend in the sky. I'll tell you, took, took some kids down to Kentucky down under, and they all want to watch Veggie Tales. So I'm like, I don't know what's on all these Veggie Tales. But they had one in coming back. And I didn't like that. That Veggie Tales was out the door at my house. It was our Veggie Tales. But when I'm hearing what all is going on in that, I'm like, and one of the things I didn't like was they refer to God as the man upstairs. I'm like, oh boy, that is bad news. Don't like that. That's not funny. Well, I'll find out this is the Veggie Tales after that Phil Vischer sold it all out and uh, basically the heathen got hold of it. And they don't understand anything about the holiness of God. The Philistines didn't understand anything about the holiness of God. I'm saying God has to be feared and respected and the church in America is losing that and all around, right? And so he deserves in our music, in our preaching, in our lives that he is to be respected, that he is holy, and that he is to be feared. And when you approach him with that attitude, that doesn't make worship joyless. Just the opposite. Because when David got his act together and got the priest down there and brought it back, I mean, it was a praise session, right? It was. <laughs> and he was careful, though, from there on out how he ordered the worship of the Lord set the people he set when he brought that ark in he's got the worshipers the levites the asaph all the worshipers are lined up and doing things the way they are supposed to with the kind of music that is supposed to be used everything is done to honor and glory the lord but there is joy there in dancing it'll be there there's a cleanness about it unlike a lot of what i hear on the radio that i don't listen to there's a cleanness about it because I'm telling you, the world, the Philistines have infiltrated the church in its preaching, in its music, in its living. Psalm 2 says this, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. It's both there, isn't it? So you can serve him with fear and you can rejoice with trembling. Amen. And Man, his presence will be there when that happens. In Mark 12, what we're looking at, if Jesus, we're asking the question, who is the Messiah? That's what he's asking. That's what they're answering. If he is more than just a man, more than just the physical line of David, but he's the son of God, then guess what? We need to heed his warning, which is what we have next. Can we hear the warning of Jesus in verses 38 to 40? What did God say? He says, this is my beloved son. Hear ye him. And so the Lord here in this next section that we're looking at, he warns us against the scribes and the Pharisees, right? He says, don't let yourself be influenced by them and don't be like them. And so what was their problem? What was these guys' problem? The scribes. They wanted to be somebody, didn't they? 
They wanted to set up everything so that they appear as important. And Jesus warns us, he says, don't be infected with their pride and hypocrisy. Look what he says in verse 38. And he said to them in his doctrine, beware of the scribes. And here's what to beware of, which they love to go in long clothing, love salutations in the marketplaces, and the chief seats in the synagogues and the uppermost rooms at feast, which devour widows' houses, and for a pretense they make long prayers. He says, these, the ones like this, shall receive greater damnation. So he's warning us in the first part we read, verses 35 to 37, he's warning, really warning everybody about their false teaching. You got to be careful of what they're saying. Anybody that's teaching, right? I mean, the Bereans checked out Paul of all people, right? And that's the way it should be. We've been told that many times. And in verse 38 to 40, he's warning, don't pick up their false way of living. Like I said, they had everything set up so they'd be admired. They had these long white robes they wore around with these little tassels on the bottom. And I mean, they were instantly recognized wherever they went. And they loved that. Oh, there's that guy. You know he's close to God. Oh, yes. And they loved that happening, right? Salutations. And so anywhere they walked, you know, they didn't initiate the salutations. The people did to them. Father, Rabbi, oh, great teacher. Oh, they love that. Yes. They probably just gave that little nod. They loved it, it says. That's what Jesus says. They love it. In the chief seats in the synagogue, they had a bench right up front. Now, we don't have the problem here, people in the front. But they had a bench right up front that faced the crowd, and everybody, it was right up where all the scrolls were, and these are the guys that know all about all that. And they got that upper seat, and everybody's looking up at them thinking they're the big cheeses, and they liked it. And they'd go to banquets, and they'd always get the seats of honor at the banquets. They loved all that. They loved all that prestige. And Jesus is saying, he's warning us, don't value that prestige like they do. Don't want to be important. Because it says in Matthew 23, Matthew gives a whole chapter to it. Mark just gives a few verses here. Matthew 23 Jesus says there, he says, all of their works, all of their religious activity, they do for one reason only, to be seen of men. And we have got to watch that, don't we? What is our attitude to be? We know the Sermon on the Mount, what does it say? We don't do what we do to be seen of men. Jesus says, no, if you do it that way, you've got your reward. We're to do the things we do. If somebody finds out about it, we can't help that. But our motivation is what? We're just doing things to serve our Heavenly Father, to have Him pleased with us. That's what Jesus says. Not to see how great we are, not to have people praising us. And Jesus told him in Matthew 23, He says, He that is greatest among you, and we've heard this several times, shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. These men, he's saying, they appeared one way, but inside they were something else. Came in sheep's clothing, in their white robes, acting all pious, praying a long time. But he said, inwardly they are ravening wolves. And that's what we have here. Look what it says in verse 40. They devour like a ravening wolves widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, is what he says there. Cheating helpless widows, wolves at heart, is what they were. Josephus, 
this is a Josephus was a Jewish historian about this time. And he tells, they call him a scoundrel. There's a guy that was exiled out of Jerusalem, went up to Rome, and he portrayed himself like he was a scribe. And he would interpret Moses' law and give the wisdom of Moses' law to people. And he gets hold of this widow. Her name was Fulvia. And he cons her into where she's given all this huge contributions to him, this widow, all this money. And he's saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to take it down to Jerusalem, to the temple. Didn't take a penny down there. And the emperor found out about it. Wasn't a good ending for that man at all. And that's what Jesus says. Those kind of people, he says, will receive the greater damnation. Because why? The scribes and the religious leader, they were supposed to be protectors of the widows and the orphans. And instead, they're just working the system. And they took their means of living from them. And they do that through their false piety. And that still happens today, doesn't it, on TV? Those guys will say those long prayers, and I mean, man, they are after. And it's mainly probably single women give their money. Oh, if you give that money, this, this, and this will happen to you. And it just touches their heart, and they're crying, and they're long prayers, and they're just sending them everything they have. I know several people that did that. So we need to make sure... For us, that we're not that way, right? That we don't do things to be seen of men. Because the one thing we need to see is a hypocrite can fool the people. Some of the time, sometimes, all of the time. But nobody is going to fool our Lord Jesus Christ, is he? And that's one reason these guys put him on a cross. Because he exposed their hypocrisy like no one else had or could. We're not going to fool him. He sees right through it and... What we need to see here in the end of verse 40 is he hates it, doesn't he? He doesn't have any kind words for hypocrites. He says, these shall receive the greater damnation. And so what's that telling us? That's telling us there are degrees of punishment. So those that don't know that much, that haven't heard that much, he says they're going to have less punishment. But these guys here that's saying all of what they know and all of what they did know but didn't practice. He says, whatever they tell you to do in Matthew 23, that you do. But don't be like them because they won't even lift a little finger to do the things they're telling you to do. Not even let, they won't do any of it. No intention because their hearts aren't regenerated. They have no desire. But if you would, you're in Mark 11. Just turn over a little bit there to Luke 12. And I know this is a sobering verse, but we're going to read it nonetheless. Luke chapter 12, verses 47 to 48. He's saying they'll have the greater damnation. And let's just start in verse 42. And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? He says, Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you, he'll make him ruler over all he has. But and if that servant say in his heart, My Lord delays his coming and shall begin to beat the men servants and maidens and to eat and drink and to be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looks not for him and in an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in sunder and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. 
For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. And I'm saying, I don't know about for you, but for me, that is serious. Because we've heard a lot of teaching here. We've heard a lot of truth for all these years. And we have to ask ourselves, are we really walking in the truth we've heard? Because we are going to have to give an account. And God is forgiving, isn't he? And patient and working with us. But we still, we have got, it's just, that's what it says, right? We're going to be held account for all the light that we've had. So we all say we want to hear the word. We love to hear the word. But there's a responsibility that goes with that, isn't it? And we're talking about that in James, that we need to be doers of the word and not just hearers. And so back in Mark chapter 12, the third question I want to ask so is dealing with verses 41 to 44, and that is, do we have the heart of the poor widow? And so the Lord gives this example here. This thing actually happened in contrast to the scribes which devoured widows' houses, the greedy ones. But what does he do? He sits on a bench where he could watch the people bringing in their offerings. And look what it says. And Jesus sat, verse 41, he sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury and many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow and she threw in two mites which make a farthing. He's watching them bringing in this temple treasury. What it was, they had 13 of these boxes that were shaped like a trumpet, like a safar trumpet, and people would just cast their money in there, throw their money into them. And so they had metal coins, and I'm sure they made a noise. They would clink. They clinked inside the box and made their way down. And when it says they cast in much, I can just picture somebody with a bag and pouring it in there, and it probably sounds like the noise you hear when somebody hits a, a Las Vegas payout. And you just hear all that money clanking on down there, rushing on down there like a river, right? <laughs> but then here comes this poor woman, this poor widow. And she's just got two coins. And these coins she has are the smallest coins they had in that society. Two small little copper coins. And she puts those in. I bet you they didn't make much noise at all. Two little dinks. And you might have been able to hear them roll down to the bottom. And that was it in comparison to those people. Think about it compared to the hundreds, if not thousands, of the equivalent dollars that these people, the rich, are putting in, throwing in. I'm telling you, her two coins were basically worthless monetarily, right? A denarius was a day's wages. That's how much you earn in a day, the average worker. The coins she threw in were worth one sixty-fourth of a denarius. In other words, six minutes of what you would get paid for working for six minutes. That's how much your coin's worth, basically next to nothing, like a penny. It's like having a penny to throw in. But Jesus, he calls his disciples over, come here, I want you to see something. I want you to look at this. And points out this woman. He wants to make a big point. Look at verse 43, he calls over his disciples and says unto them, Verily, whenever he says that, he's making a big point that we will just read over so many times. Verily. And what's he showing them? He's going to show them how God has a different scale of measurement than man. Because Jesus says this woman has cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. And literally in the Greek, he says this, this destitute widow 
has cast in greater in quantity. He's saying these two little tiny copper coins were the greatest gift that was put in the treasury that day. Why is he saying that? I like well, the way one commentator said it. He said the rest of them, they gave contributions, but she gave a sacrifice. So God doesn't measure what we give on the value or the amount, but on the percentage. Because what percentage had she given? 100%. So these other people that are pouring all their coins in there, they're giving 5%, 10%, maybe 25% of what they own. But this lady throwing in those two little tiny coins, he's saying she gave everything out of her poverty, out of her want. All that that would have done is maybe bought her one meager meal. And she's putting that, she's not getting that that day. That she put that in there. So you got a big contrast going on here. I mean, he's got, he just told us all about the scribes and how they were devouring widows' houses, all the praise they love. And you got a contrast here. You've got this poor widow. The scribes were rich. She is uneducated in the law. She just knows a basic amount of the law. You don't have to be deep in the word for God to consider you spiritual. These guys were the experts. And Jesus doesn't have anything good to say about him, right? She's a woman. They're men. They had no faith in God at all. In fact, they stole from God and men. She, on the other hand, had great faith that God would somehow supply all of her needs when she gave everything away. Because some people would be like, what are you doing, woman? You better hold on to that little bit you have. You're skinny as a rail as it is. How are you going to eat? Oh, no, this is what I'm giving the Lord. Jesus said she's given more than all of them. Come over here and look at this. I want you to get this point. One guy said in the temple, others gave what they could spare, but the widow spared nothing of what she had. So what he's doing is, why is he pointing this woman out? He's saying, I've been talking to you all about discipleship and what it means. Here's a model of it right here. Here's a model of what it means we just talked about to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. She's a model of that, he's going to tell them. This is what it means back when I asked you all to forsake all and follow me. She lives that out daily. That's how she lives. Because God had all of that woman's heart, didn't he? Like they say, you got somebody's pocketbook and you got their heart. That's the way it is. A.W. Tozer said, in God's sight... My giving is measured not by how much I give, but by how much I have left after I make my gift. Not by its size is my gift judged, but by how much of me there is in it. No one gives it all until he has given all, Tozer said. No one gives anything acceptable to God until he has first given himself in love and sacrifice. I thought that was pretty good. Here's another thing I want to say. So God doesn't despise the size of our gifts. So it's not just money, is it? It's money, it's time, it's prayer, it's talents. And so if we've given him all we have, it doesn't matter. When we see that, it doesn't matter how it compares to what others do and what others give. 
And I'm saying we get into that in America, don't we? Who's the greatest? Who's the biggest? Who's the fastest? Who's getting paid the most money? We're into all that. And that's how we judge and compare people. So you just take prayers. You know, some people, they can just, they are just verbose, naturally. They can pray a prayer that just have you crying and pray from one end of heaven to the other, right? And everyone's like, wow. Then there's this other person over here, and you hear them pray, and you're like, well, that wasn't much. Well, you know what? That was a lot for them. And for them to express what was in their heart, it just came out in a few words. They're nervous. They're not public people. And we can't look on that and be like, I could do a hundred times better than that. Because Jesus is probably looking at that and saying, I'm looking at their heart. And that was a big deal. That was a big sacrifice for them to say that short prayer. And I heard that prayer. Now I'm going to put my anointing on that. And that's the way it is. So he accepts long prayers. There's nothing wrong with that if they're sincere. But I think equally he will accept a short prayer. That they got all the words backwards and mixed up because they were nervous. So he's looking at the sacrifice. Isn't that the principle we're seeing here? Not how it compares to others. And that's what we need to see. So whether we're witnessing, sharing, witnessing, prophesying, helping others, don't compare it to what somebody else could do. Compare it to, am I giving my all to God in doing this? And it just doesn't compare. So what? He's the one that's going to reward you, right? And that's what I see there. So his acceptance standards of accepting our works is not the world's standards. And we need to remember that with ourselves, with what we have to offer, and when we're looking at others with what they have to offer, right? Helps to be understanding that way. So the question he asked here, first of all, Jesus is, what do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? If he's only the physical son of David, guess what? If that's all he is, we can safely ignore him. But if he is not only the son of David, but also the son of God, then we need to take him seriously. Isn't that the warnings we have all through the New Testament? And like quoted earlier, the father said, this is my beloved son. Hear ye him. And it says in Hebrews, if the ones that heard the angels bring in the law, when they ignored that, they were punished. How much more when the Lord from heaven is speaking to us and has spoken to us and is coming down here to speak to us. We can't neglect so great a salvation that he's brought. So he's the one. He can relate to our, our human experiences and he will help us. But he is also the one that is holy and that is high and that is lifted up and that will one day be the judge of all the earth. And none of us are going to escape that. Right? So we need to heed his warning. Second thing he said we talked about was we need to make sure we avoid and get out of our hearts all pride and greed and hypocrisy. Right? Make sure we're not doing things, checking our motives. We're not doing this to be seen of men. The things we do is going to hold us accountable for the light we receive. We talked about that. And let us just pray for grace that we can cheerfully give like the poor widow did, right? <laughs> and be cheerful givers and not grudging givers. Why can we do that? Because he gave 100% for us. And so we should be able to give 100% back to him and to whomever he directs us. Amen? Amen. That's the word of the Lord for us tonight. Amen. And Father, we just thank you, Lord, for the word that you've given us. 
We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ came down here and he not only was a man, Lord, but he was fully God in the flesh. And we just thank you that he came down and we just ask you that you'll give us in our hearts that proper respect for him in that way. And also, Father, that you help us to avoid doing things to be seen of men, to wanting to be important, and that you'll just give us hearts to be servants towards each other and towards others. And that we also can be people that are givers, Lord. And I know these people here are, have been giving people, and I just ask you'll continue to have us to be that way. And any of us that aren't, Lord, you can just deal with us and help us to see that you were willing to give all and that we can give all in return. And I just thank you that you'll do that and make this word real to us tonight and help us to live it, to be doers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>